May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So Advent 4, on Wednesday it's Christmas, so we heard a version of the Christmas story this morning. We heard Matthew's version. Now we have a tendency to smush the two versions in the Bible together and pretend that they're all the same. But they are not the same. They are in fact quite different. So I want you to talk to your neighbours for a moment about what is the same and what is different about the two Christmas stories, one in Matthew and one in Luke. The other two Gospels don't have Christmas stories. You've got a couple of minutes to talk about that. And then I have another question for you. So what is the same and what is different? There are Bibles in your pews, so you don't have to just make it up. You can look it up if you like. It's not a closed book. Yes. It's an open book. Yes. And the follow-up question is, so what? So what? Well, I'll let you just think about the second question. We'll just kind of get what was the same and what was the what was different. So we'll start off what was what was the same? What is the common elements between these two stories? Okay, Mary, Joseph, baby. Where did they have the baby? Bethlehem. No mention of a manger in Matthew. So, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, in Bethlehem, had a baby. That's it. It's all that's common between them. So, if you were to look at this beautifully set up Christmas story here, which version is this one? We've got shepherds and sheep and donkeys and mangers. It's Luke. That's Luke's version. So Matthew's version is over here. Matthew's version is wise men. And they're not there. They're not in Luke. They're in Matthew. And they don't get there until Epiphany, which is still two weeks away. Which is why they're over here. They don't belong in that story yet. They have their own Sunday. Not on Christmas Day. We keep cramming them into Christmas Day and then they lose their Sunday. So that's, that's when the Orthodox Church do Christmas. On Epiphany. Not on our Christmas Day. So, here's another question. In ordinary life, where did Mary and Joseph live? Do they live in Nazareth and Matthew? No, they live in Bethlehem. So, they don't need a manger. They don't need a stable. They just have the baby at home, like everyone else. Now, in all likelihood, if they were relatively poor, they lived in a cave with any animals they owned in the back of the cave and the people living in the front of the cave. So it would have been pretty much like the whole, which is what Luke is talking about. It would have been pretty much the same scene, but there's no census, no travel on donkey down to Bethlehem, there's no crowded inns, there's no stable, 
They just have a baby at home because Mary and Joseph live in Bethlehem. After the baby's born, what happens? What happens in Luke? They go, they go back to Nazareth. And how do they go back to Nazareth? What route do they take? No. That's Matthew. Where does Luke take them? Sorry? No, that's Matthew. Where does Luke take them on their way back home to Nazareth? Via Jerusalem. So Luke has the presentation of the temple. Anna and Simeon. We're all good Anglicans. We all know the Nunc Dimittis because we sang it at Evensong. Simeon's song. It doesn't appear in Matthew. What happens in Matthew? They go to they go to Egypt. And why do they go to Egypt? Because Herod is trying to kill Jesus. And Herod knows about them because of these guys over here. The wise men, or actually they're magi, they're not they're not wise men at all, they are astrologers. So a class of people within the Persian Empire, and they tell Herod about that. So they go to Egypt, and then, instead of going home, which is what Matthew talks about, them going home to Bethlehem, they go to Nazareth to avoid Herod Antipas. So the common elements are Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Jesus born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth. And everything apart from that is different. So in Matthew, so the last question, whose perspective does Matthew tell the story from? Joseph's. And whose perspective does Luke tell the story from? Mary. Very different stories. One told from Jews. Joseph's point of view, one told from Mary's point of view. So Luke has all the stuff about Elizabeth and the visitation to Elizabeth and Mary's song when she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. None of that is in Joseph because no relative of Joseph's. So it doesn't tell those stories. So they are entirely different stories. And in our world, we might be a little bit worried about that because in our world, truth is either something that happened or something that we can verify by scientific methodology. We are children of the Enlightenment. But the Enlightenment doesn't happen for another 1,500 years after this. So for most of history, and actually still around the world, truth is simply something that is true. And when I was doing philosophy, there was two categories of truth. There was a priori truth, something that is true, and a posteriori, something about that truth, which I was never that very good at, us, the stuff that we determine is true through it happened or scientific methodology. So when we read the Gospels, we read them as, but this to be true, it had to happen this way, which is a little bit problematic because they keep telling two different stories. But actually, Luke and Matthew weren't interested in that. They were interested in a bigger truth. They were interested in the truth about Jesus. 
Like all the gospel writers, they were writing a gospel to tell us about who is Jesus and so what. And that's really what we've been doing in Advent. Who is Jesus? Who is the Christ of history? Who is the Christ of mystery? Who is the Christ of majesty? And we encounter that in the person of Jesus. And Matthew, so far, this Advent, has done that by talking about when Jesus gets baptised, John's announcement about who he is. So that was two weeks ago. Last week we heard John's getting some doubts and he asks the question we're all invited to ask at Advent. Are you the one or should we be looking for another? And Jesus responds by quoting pieces of Isaiah, which talks about what he's been doing in the eight chapters between then. So this is what Jesus does The beginning of his gospel, I tucked in verse 17. If you're looking at your pew sheet, you'd go, but it says, starts at verse 18. So the first 17 verses are his whakapapa, his genealogy. So he's establishing who Jesus is through his genealogy. It's a different genealogy from Luke's genealogy. So they're doing different things because they're answering the question, who is Jesus and so what differently? So they tell the story differently. Even the genealogies are different. So Matthew's goes back to Abraham. Anyone remember where Luke's goes back to? Nope. Way, way before David. Who'd be a better place to start off with? Adam. Who is? How does he describe him? Son of God. Son of God, Adam, Son of God. Uh, we need to keep remembering that Son of God is a much bigger thing than just divine. It's used to all sorts of people. David is a Son of God. He's not divine. So be careful how you use that phrase. So, through the Papa, through the genealogy. And then lastly, in the story we've heard today, he shows who Jesus is by one of his favourite lines. All this took place to fulfil what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Now, Matthew does that all the time. Everything he's doing is trying to show that this was all foretold. And in doing so, he is trying to, trying to show how Jesus is a continuation with the bigger story. The other gospel writers do that in different ways, but this is Matthew's way of doing it. And so Matthew is doing this in a way by showing how Jesus is the new Moses. So where does Moses start off? Which part of the world? Moses started off in Egypt. So for Jesus to be the new Moses, somehow he has to get to Egypt. So he has him going to flee Herod, goes to Egypt, and then travels through the wilderness, just like Moses did, back to the promised land. He is the new Moses. That's the whole point of that part of the story. So let's have a look at this prophecy that, that Matthew is hinging this on. 
The prophecy we heard in Isaiah today, Isaiah 7, and if you've been paying attention, you would have noticed there were a few things that were different between what Matthew said and what was in our version of Isaiah, because Matthew was using the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and we use the Hebrew version. And so there is a significant difference in there. So let's talk about the story of Isaiah 7. In Isaiah 7, there was a king of the southern kingdom called Ahaz, or Ahaz, and uh, so he was the Lion of David, so he too gets called um, from the house of David, just like Joseph did. And uh, to his north were the kingdom of Samaria, which is the ten northern tribes, and Syria. And then further to the northeast was a new empire called the Assyrians. So that's different from the Assyrian from the Syrians because the Syrians don't have an A in front of it. So uh, and Samaria and Syria are worried about the Assyrians. And so they say to Ahaz, come and join us and form a coalition and we will fight the Assyrians. But Ahaz says, no thank you very much, that sounds like a really bad idea. And so the Syrians and the Sumerians go, well, we need you to have any chance, so we're going to get rid of you. We're going to depose you. So they try to kill him, and then they send an army down to depose him. And he is in no position to fight that army. So he's a little bit worried about this. So he does a sneaky little deal. He goes off, sends off an emissaries to the Assyrians and says, if you protect me, I will become a vassal king. Would that be a good idea? And the Assyrians go, we're up for that. Thank you very much. Meanwhile, Isaiah comes to see Ahaz, or Ahaz, and says, O king, God is with us. You do not need to act out of fear. Trust God. And just so that we clearly have some doubts about that, you name any sign, no matter how large, and God will do that for you to show that you can trust God in this matter. And Ahaz, as we heard this morning, then pretends to be very pious and goes, no, 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 who am I, who am I to test God? Actually, he's already done the deal with the Assyrians, so he's, he doesn't need God's help. He's like, ah, yeah, that'd be nice to have your help, but actually I've done a deal with the Assyrians, so... Thank you very much. Don't need your help. You can go now. Thank you, oh crazy prophet. To which Isaiah knows exactly what's going on. And he says, well, you know what? You're going to get a sign anyway. And this is the sign. A young woman, not a virgin, a young woman will give birth to a son and she will name him Emmanuel. God is with us. And before that child is two, that's what all that stuff about knowing the difference between the good and the evil. I love those lines. Uh, two is when you knew the difference between the good and the evil. So before the child was two, those two northern kingdoms that you're very worried about will be no more. The Assyrians will have ground them into the dust. And sure enough, a child was born, and before that child was two... The Assyrians had come through and ground those two kingdoms into the dust. Samaria, no more, will never re-emerge. And then the Assyrians go, 
you know what? We quite like Jerusalem as well. So they come on down south. And it's like one of those game shows. Come on down, Assyria. Take Jerusalem as well. So they get down there and they besiege the city. But before they can take the city, something happens back in Assyria and the army has to return home. And they're safe. God is with us. What Isaiah had said had come to pass. But a hundred years later, there was a new empire on the block. The Babylonians. The Assyrians had disappeared and the Babylonians were in town. And they came through and they did take Jerusalem. And eventually they destroyed Jerusalem and razed the temple. And all the leadership and all the scholars and the artisans were taken away to Babylon to serve the Babylonian Empire. And there were people who said, well, what does it mean then for God to be with us in this new land? In a foreign land under the rule of a foreign king. And so they thought about that and they reinterpreted what God with us means in that new place. And that's Isaiah 40 to 60, essentially. And then the Babylonians got defeated and there was a new empire on the block. And they were called the Persians. And so it's another 50 to 80 years later. And... The Persians said, you can go home. And so some of the people did go home. It was a pretty sweet life for a lot of them in Babylon, to be honest. Like we think, oh, those poor Israelites in Babylon. A lot of them were in pretty important positions. And they were living a very comfortable life. So a lot of them actually stayed. But a lot went back. And they had great expectations. It was going to be great going home. They were going to rebuild the city. They were going to be rebuild the temple. People were going to cheer as they came home. And they got there and people didn't cheer. There was no banner. They went, what are you people doing here? Go away. We don't want you. There were no walls, so they kept being raided. The temple took forever to build and it was just a shadow of what it had used to be. And they were pretty disappointed about life. And they said, well, what does it mean for God to be with us in this new place? And that's Isaiah 60 to 65. As people work at, what does it mean for God to be with us in this hard, hard place? And then, a child is born in Bethlehem. And Matthew says... And this is the promise of God with us in a new way. In a new way. And the rest of my story is about what that looks like. What does it mean for God with us in this baby? So, there was already a baby 700 years earlier, born to a woman called Emmanuel. But Matthew takes that prophecy and essentially what he's doing for the rest of his gospel is talking about what does it mean for God to be with us in this baby, Jesus. All of which comes out of Ahaz getting his comeuppance. So, there are some things to note about all of this. The first is... That it is God with us, not God with you, not God with me, but God with us collectively. 
And one of the troubles with Christianity is we have kind of divided that up into God is with me. A lot of our music nowadays, well, for a long time, has been about God with me. But actually the promise was God with us. And that's an important thing because it's collective, it's communal. We belong together. Us in this place, in this church, this community. What does it mean for God to be with us? What does it mean for God to be with us, the people of God scattered around the world who are really good at not being with each other? What does it mean for us in this land to be God with us? How do we see and treat each other if God is with us? And then God with us in this world together. God with us collectively. How do we live out God with us? Feels good. Sorry? Feels good. It feels good. So the second thing to note is that God with us doesn't mean that bad stuff won't happen. The exile happened and God was still with them. The return from exile was supposed to be amazing, but it wasn't. And God was still with them. And then the Romans came and God was still with them in this baby. And the temple was destroyed again and God was still with us. And here we are today. God is with us in the good and in the not so good. I remember a few years ago when I was doing spiritual well, I was spiritually directing someone and she was talking about how some of her friends who were good Christians were going through a really hard time and were in a financial crisis and she said I don't understand why God won't fix it. And I was like, what why would God fix it? Because if you're a Christian, surely God will look after you. And I went pretty sure that's not what the Bible says. It does say, take up your cross and follow me. The promise was never that we were going to have an easy life. The promise was that God is with us in that life, no matter how easy or how hard. God is with us, offering peace, offering hope, offering joy, offering love. Offering the strength to carry on. Because God is with us. The third thing to note about God with us is that we are invited to not be like Ahaz. Ahaz operated out of fear. And out of fear, he ran off to the Assyrians. Which turned out to be quite a bad thing to do. It was really bad for the Samaritans the Sumerians and the Syrians, who got smashed. They probably would have been anyway, but it came a little bit quicker. The whole point of the invitation from Isaiah was to trust God and not act out of fear. And we are also invited to not act out of fear. And well, there's a lot in our world today that we could act out of fear about, isn't there? The podcast I listened to 
uh, is an American podcast. The American church has caught up with us and they are now having rapidly declining churches and they're very concerned that millennials don't go anywhere near church and don't seem to believe and they're not sure what the future of church is. And I listen to their podcast and go, welcome to our reality. And in fact, I think there's a few more generations that haven't been going to church as well. So this is a, this is a bit of a shock for America. Like they've had church attendances up around 70% and now it's, and ours has never been above 20. So it's a, it's a shock. But it is something to worry about. If you look around our average age, what is the future of our church? What is the future of the Anglican church? What is the future of church in this land? We could act out of fear about that. Or we could act out of God is with us in this and act faithfully in that, whatever that means, and trust God for the rest. Climate change, there's a lot of fear about climate change, the lack of action, what the action is going to cause, what the future looks like. One of the things we as a church can offer is to not respond to that in fear. It's easy to respond in fear, but we are invited to know that God is with us in this and to act out of that. And then the fourth thing to note is you still have to act. There are a few Christians around going, God's got this, we don't have to do anything. Ahaz had to act. He had to act by not forming an alliance with Syria and Samaria, by not forming an alliance with Assyria, by just trusting God and being faithful. He had to act. He chose to act out of fear and it all turned to custard. Well, not for him, but people up the north it did, and eventually for the southern kingdom. Joseph had to act. He couldn't just say, oh yeah, okay, that's sweet. He had to take Mary as his wife, and he had to name him Jesus, which doesn't mean Emmanuel at all. It means God saves. It means something entirely different. So, uh, the same is true for us. We can't just rest and think God is with us. God with us is about action. Joining God in that action. Which takes us to some questions about if we are to act out of trusting that God is with us, not out of fear, acting that God is with us even when it seems pretty tough, acting that God is with us, really looking at the us in all of that. What does God with us look like in this baby Jesus or in the life of Jesus? Because that's what Matthew is really talking about. What does it look like in Jesus? And then, in light of that, what does God with us mean for us today? So I'm going to finish with a little poem that I wrote. And then uh, I'm going to invite you to 
instead of a creed to talk to your neighbour about what does God with us look like in Jesus and what does God with us mean for us today as we approach Christmas. Don't sit being sad. Don't be stuck in this moment, lost in the what-ifs and if-only. It is. So get up. Go. Take your sadness into the world. Share it in the street. Find others who too are filled. Let go of this moment and embrace the next. For there you may live love.